What is up, everybody? We are back today with another episode of the Fetched Podcast, and we have the notorious Amanda Hahn on today, who literally wrote the book on tax strategies, and we are so excited to have her. Amanda, hello. How are you? Hi, guys. I am so excited to be here. I've never been introduced as notorious, though. I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> You're a tax gangster. Everybody, everybody wants to be able to have a conversation with you. That's why I said I was so excited when we had you on. <laughs> That was my gang sign. <laughs> so Amanda, for those of you who, for those who don't know you, can you tell us a little bit about your background, who you are, what you do, and how you help save people millions of dollars? Oh, sure, sure. Well, my name's Amanda Hahn. I, uh, what I tell people is I am a CPA by day and real estate investor by night. So like a lot of our audience, real estate is still sort of my side gig. But many years ago, my husband and I decided to start real estate investing because we were CPAs for real estate investors. First and foremost, we started out our careers at a big four accounting firm in the real estate group. And so we spent the uh, a big part of our career really helping super high net worth individuals on how to use real estate to save on taxes. And so when we first started investing on our own, we started going to like local real estate meetups and things like that, uh, which was when we came to the realization that everyday investors uh, don't have access to strategies. You know, we just thought everybody, you know, understood or had a team of CPAs. And when we started meeting with, you know, local investors is when we realized, wow, there's a huge need because the average investor doesn't have a team of people to bring strategies. And so that's how we started our firm, which is Keystone CPA. And we help investors nationwide on how to use planning to use real estate to save on taxes. That's fantastic. So whenever you guys like first got started, like when it, like what kind of degree does a, a CPA typically have? I know some people they have like business or they have some people are like law or whatever. So what kind of deg degree is somebody who's wanting to follow your path? And then how did you, once you got done with schooling, get, did you want to get into real estate tax or was it real estate like just an option that was out there? Or is that something you were specifically pursuing? Yeah, well, that's a really interesting question. So to be a CPA, I mean, you have to have a bachelor's degree and, you know, now you have to have some additional units and obviously pass the CPA test, which uh, as the last time I saw that was harder to pass than the bar exam, like in terms of the percentage of people who actually pass it. Um, after you pass it, you have to go through, you have to work in a public accounting firm and kind of work with, um, you know, a couple years just to get experience, sort of like residency, right? When doctors do residency. Um, so we have to get our hours into to become a CPA. My husband and I happened to end up in the real estate group by chance. It wasn't something that we chose. You know, when you start working at a big four accounting firm, they kind of, you know, give you just different types of clients. And I guess, you know, for me specifically, I got a lot of real estate clients to start with. And I, I guess I did good. So I just kind of stayed in that specialty group. So yeah, it wasn't like my dream to grow up and be a real estate CPA at all. Just kind of happened that way, which turned out to be really phenomenal, actually, for me. I want to ask you something because uh, I want to grab the audience right away. What's something from uh, since you I would say you are a tax master, tax gangster. What's one thing about real estate since you have the full gamut on it that people looking to get into Airbnb or real estate wouldn't know about tax advantages for real estate? Um, and I would imagine from where you sit, you you see everything that nobody else sees and your husband. So I'm just curious, I, and we'll get back to how you started, but I just really want to hear hear that one thing that you think people don't know. Oh gosh, it's hard because, you know, real estate investors are all different experience levels. I will say, if we're talking specifically about the short-term rental space, 
<laughs> uh, it's not even just that the, the, the investors don't know. A lot of CPAs actually don't know this, that there is a fairly easy way to strategically create tax losses and use that to offset income, not just from your rental properties, but also your W-2 or other businesses that you might have as well. And uh, I say this not as an exaggeration because I just started getting involved with social media a couple months ago and started sharing tax strategies about long-term rentals, mid-term rentals, and short-term rentals. Short-term rental space is the one where I get the most DMs on, where people will say, gosh, I heard what you talked about. I talked to my CPA and they didn't know about this potential benefit. That's great. That's amazing. So you're you're saying, and I've tried to like grasp this, but I, I'm in the medium term rental game right now. But shortly we'll be getting into the short term rental game. So that's something that I'm going to need to understand. But from what I understand, can you describe the uh, short term rental tax advantage that there can be with uh, W2 earners? Because I, I I work in healthcare, and so I work with a lot of really high W2 earners, and they're like, how can I yeah. decrease my tax burden? So I know that there's a way to do it, but I can't. I can't describe it to somebody if I had to. <laughs> yeah, and it's interesting you say that because we have a lot of clients that's in the healthcare industry, especially from 2020, 2020 and beyond, kind of pivoting a little bit to real estate. The benefit, the tax benefit of the short-term rental space when it comes to taxes is that real estate could be your side hustle and you can still create tax losses and write-offs and offset your W-2 income. Um, comparatively, if you're in the long-term rental space, really to use the rental losses and wipe out taxes from W-2, you have to be what we call real estate professional, which means effectively you have to spend more time in real estate than your job, right? Which would be difficult uh -huh. for someone in any kind of industry. Um, but with respect to short-term rental, we call it the short-term rental loophole that basically says, as long as you meet material participation hours, and we can kind of dive into that later on, as long as you meet material participation hours, then you can use those losses that you strategically create to offset W-2. Again, even if you're still working full-time in whatever industry you're in, and real estate is just a side hustle for you. I say we jump into it right away. I mean, like, so let's say yeah. I'm a physician that's making $500,000 a year, and I want to be able to reduce down my $500,000 a year salary by using short-term rentals. How would I go about that? Yeah. So, well, there's a couple different things, right? First thing with everybody that invests in rental real estate, you want to make sure you capture all of your expenses. And so not just like the property stuff, like interest and taxes, but all of your overhead expenses, like you traveling to go to real estate conferences, meetups, traveling to look for properties, right? So making sure you capture expenses, that's step one. Um, step two is making sure you maximize your depreciation benefits. So again, whether long-term rentals, short-term rentals, making sure you take accelerated depreciation, bonus depreciation, because the, uh, the tax law allows us to write off or depreciate the purchase price of the building uh, over you know, 27 and a half years or 39 years and sometimes even faster, especially for short-term rental investors or even midterm, right? Because we're, we don't just have like a, a vacant property we're renting out, we're also spending a lot of money on staging with all types of furniture and equipment and things like that. So a lot of those things or most of those will be eligible 
for bonus depreciation. So after step one and two of maximizing our write-offs, let's say, you know, again, you have 500,000 of W-2 income, but you have a short-term rental that gets you um, two, $300,000 of a tax loss that, again, you created strategically. Then the question becomes, can I use that loss to offset my W-2? And the answer is, Possibly, you can do it if you or a spouse can meet material participation. There's a couple different ways to qualify for it. Uh, one of the, the main ones that we encourage clients to qualify for is 500 hours working on the rental properties. And you can combine it. You know, if you have a couple rentals, you can combine them all. But effectively, if you have 500 hours on your rentals, then you meet material participation. And the benefit is you can use that $300,000 tax loss to offset W-2 and other income. And then, so you said that you can combine properties. And like my my wife and I, if we were working together in our, like we were both property managers, we were both on the Airbnb listings and we were together working on this, could we combine like 250 and 250? Yeah, definitely. So you can combine your hours and you can combine your properties too, right? That's so awesome. if you have a couple properties and she's also working on the same properties, yeah, you can combine all of those to meet the 500 hour mark. And I bring 500 up because that's kind of the, you know, the standard one to meet. There's actually seven different ways to qualify for material participation. Um, the two other more common ones we see is that you spend at least a hundred hours on your rentals and nobody else spends more time than you. That's one that works pretty well for some of our clients who are buying short-term rentals later in the year because maybe they're the only ones that's you know purchasing staging getting it up and ready um so that's when we see a lot as well um, the third way that we see not as frequent but also we do see that from time to time is that you as the property owner you have any number of hours but as long as those are more hours than everybody else combined then you also meet material participation so let's say you had 80 hours and and, you know, your cleaning crew, your gardeners, collectively, they only have 30 hours, then you would have also met that re requirement too. I raised my hand so David and I knew who to ask. I wanted to ask. Yeah. This, is, this is amazing information. Amanda, you're a huge beast. I have a question though. How do you, how do you prove that you, that you did X hours? And by the way, I, I guess that applies to long-term rental too. Like, how do you, how does anyone know? Nobody's like watching me with a ring camera. Like, oh, hey, I'm submitting my uh, hours. You could just be like, I did it. And they're not just going to give it to anybody that says it. So, like, how does that work? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, especially now, I think uh, the IRS recently was awarded, like, over $80 billion more funding, right, for audits and stuff. It's really, really important that we're doing things correctly, like we're protecting ourselves. And, like you said, you know, not just saying we do it, but we actually do it. From a documentation perspective, the IRS will accept anything that is a consistent and what they consider contemporaneous, which means you're recording things during the year rather than recreating a logbook, you know, if you're audited two, three years from now. Um, so, you know, different methods that you can choose, whether it's Excel or a calendar. One of our clients who, interestingly enough, uh, is in the healthcare profession. She's a pediatrician. We started working with her and she decided to create an app um, to help track hours. It's called Reps Tracker, R-E-P-S Tracker. And recently, I think in the last year, she came out with a short-term rental module, I guess. So then it helps you to track 
track your hours specifically on the short-term rental side. And obviously, it'll, it'll track for long-term and, and midterm as well. But that is really any kind of reasonable and consistent method of tracking. They will accept it. The way it works is, you know, when you're tracking hours, you don't actually submit that to anybody, right? What I mean by is if, if you are claiming material participation, you don't have to send your log hours with your tax return. So those are for your documents only. Um, if you were to get audited, right, one, two, or three years from now, uh, that's when the IRS could request that logbook. What they typically do is they'll do a sample selection. So if you had 600 entries, they might choose 10 to 15 and say, hey, guys, let's, you know, prove to me that these actually happened. If you can prove it, typically they move on. You know, they're very reasonable people. Um, obviously, if you can't prove some of the ones that they selected, then they'll select a couple more and a couple more and then make a determination whether your log is actually valid. One of the first people I've heard said the IRS are very reasonable. I'm just kidding. That's funny, though. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's interesting you say that because I think that one of the issues that we see a lot in our industry is investors afraid to use tax strategies, investors afraid to, tax, to take tax deductions. Part of it because CPAs create these narratives of, you know, IRS is crazy. They're knocking down doors. That really hasn't been my experience. You know, they're, they're people like you and I, they have a job, right? So they're very reasonable. Again, in my experience, as long as you're able to prove what you've done and you're doing things correctly, it's really nothing to be afraid of. Very interesting. So uh, some things that, you know, people could say are going towards their like 500 hours, because I was just doing some quick math and that basically comes out to like 10 hours a week or like 1.4 hours a day and so like mm -hmm. he does me perusing zillow for two hours looking for short-term rental properties does that count towards short-term rental uh the hours of participation or how exactly like what things do count and what things maybe don't count to some people might yeah, that's a great question. Unfortunately, your hours looking for properties or learning about short-term rentals, that's not part of material participation. The easiest way to think about material participation are hands-on hours spent on the property that you already own. So common examples would be, um, you know, you've already acquired the property, you're doing staging, you're furnishing it, you're listing it, you're dealing with the guest turnovers, you're dealing with the cleaning crew, you know, repair crew. So that type of stuff, anything where you're spending time and you can say, yes, this is for Main Street. This is for Fremont Street. Those are the ones where are, are considered part of material participation. Okay, that was good. So it really kind of like uh, incentivizes people, honestly, to like buy more properties. And because I'm just trying to think of like, okay, me with medium term rentals, I, I really don't have to spend much time like with management material or with uh, short term rentals. And so then like with property management software and now with AI coming out where AI is doing like automated messaging, I'm like, okay, how are people going to be able to hit this 500? But let's say that you buy a property and then you have to go out there and you spend 10 hours a day for a week setting up the property then you just knocked out 70 of your 500 hours right there as long as you document everything so people could strategically start thinking yep. about like oh i need if i buy one property per year or two properties per year that knocks out over half of my required 500 hours as long as i document diligently then the rest of the hours i can fill in throughout the rest of the year so that's really interesting i've never heard that before 
Yeah, for sure. And so the material participation, you know, I said hands-on, but I don't really mean you have to be the one cleaning the property, right? So you could be dealing with the cleaning crew. That would be material participation. But, you know, sleeping time doesn't count. I know you said, you know, if we're going to go there for a week, um, it's still working hours. If you're there sleeping, um, those are not material participation per se. But yeah, this this happens a lot. You know, from a planning perspective, um, for newer investors getting into short-term rental, where you buy, what kind of property you buy is also very important, right? You want it in a location where it's still feasible for you to go and do, you know, a lot, at least a lot of the staging stuff. You want to buy a place where the depreciation maybe will give you larger tax savings. For example, an area where land is not super expensive because we can't really depreciate land, right? So I would love to see that as part of the, you know, the app that you guys do for Fetchit. Maybe we can also add like, you know, what's the land analysis? Because that's literally some of the things that our clients look at when they're shopping for short-term rentals, if you buy a property for $500,000 and the land itself is, you know, 300000 that means our depreciation will be very small versus another property where maybe the land is only, you know, eighty dollars or 100000 Now the rest of that is all going to be depreciable assets, right? Listen, if you want to help us add features to the Fetch It uh, land listings, we, we ain't going to be mad about it, you know, happy to do it. We've had all kinds of suggestions that we've put into the system from people we've had on. So I'd love Amanda, if you want to sit with us anytime after this. And by the way, this is the first time we've talked about the software on the pod. We almost never do it. Um, actually, literally, I think it's the first time. So Amanda, I'm just going to take that as a sign from the universe. We're going to run with that later on. <laughs> yeah, no, I love it. I'm so excited about the Fetch It app. And yeah, I I, I mean, I, I'm not a tech person at all, but um, I imagine that'd be something somewhat easy for you guys to add in, right? And again, just from as a user's perspective, when I'm shopping for properties, and especially for our clients who are doing the short-term rental space, land is something that they're very interested in because it, it could be a, a pretty significant difference when it comes to the, the amount of tax savings that you get. What I would say is we've added, we're trying to make it the, the, the super niche tool for short-term rental investors. And right now, right now we have land listings and predictions of what we think it'll make. But if we could have something around land depreciation, that would be enormous. We just added a creative finance calculator for the sub two community. So if you had ideas for tax and depreciation on land, we would do it. But yeah. I don't want to spend any more time on that. We're going to get more into you. So, so David, what do you... What should we cover yeah. next? What do you think? So, so I mean, we kind of went off on a, on, a, on a side road there, but it was absolutely yeah. fantastic. So we're going back a little bit more then. So whenever you and your husband, you're watching all these other people that were making a bunch of money in real estate, you're helping them save money in real estate. When was it the light bulb came on to your guys were like, okay, we need to buy something. And then what was that first purchase? <laughs> it's funny. So actually it was my husband who ended up reading Rich Dad Poor Dad book. At the time, he was one of the tax advisors who worked with uh, Robert Kiyosaki's CPA. <laughs> so he was kind of forced to read that book um, as part of his job, right? That's awesome. like, these are the people. Yeah. <laughs> Um, it was, I, I vividly remember this too, because we we're just like, you know, sitting up in bed and he turned to me, he said, Hey, we should buy some rental properties. I just, I literally thought he lost his mind. Like, Hey, you know, we're CPAs. What, why would we, you know, how would we, there's so many questions. And and something that was really interesting is I was, I myself was actually not super excited about investing in real estate at first because 
I come from a third generation of real estate investors, like my grandparents did real estate, my parents did real estate, and they were very hands-on investors. Like we lived in the condo community where our family owned the condos. And so I grew up kind of seeing um, maybe the darker side of being an investor, you know, like what you hear, right? The 3 a.m. toilet calls, like my grandpa had to go around and do all these cleanup. I mean, I had to do that as a kid. Um, so it's kind of just not, not something I was super attracted to in terms of my own investment vehicle. But, you know, obviously now, years later, we've been able to build a portfolio where, you know, I'm never getting 2 a.m. phone calls. I'm never like having to deal with toilet issues. And a lot of our clients do the same, too. So that's sort of the <laughs> how the, the story started and the story ended. So what did that first purchase look like? What did you guys decide to pursue? Is it short-term rental or long-term Our first property got, I think back in the day, it was way before short-term rental. It was back in like 2008. <laughs> I don't know that short-term rental was even a thing. Um, yeah, we just bought a small single-family home in Las Vegas, which is where, I, um, where I'm from originally, where I grew up. And, you know, it was at the start of the, the last big real estate market crash, bought a property, um, I think it was three bedroom, two bath in a gated community for $80,000. Actually, yeah, it was between 70 and 80, so under $80,000. Fantastic. So, so then, you know, as the evolution of that, you're like, okay, we got some tents in here, it's making money. And then like, how quickly after that were you guys like, okay, let's start like snowballing this and see if we could really turn it into something. And what's the portfolio look like today, if you're okay with sharing yeah. Oh, gosh. The first property I said was very scary to purchase. Even being a CPA, doing, you know, working with real estate investors, and I, I know all the numbers, but it was still, I remember, it was quite scary just to sign on all the closing documents. But yeah, we bought our second and third property pretty quickly. I want to say within the, the, the next 12 months was when we bought like the subsequent real estate. You know, again, in 2008, is at the time, real estate was all, almost like a bad word because the market was, you know, pretty terrible. Um, so it was one of those where, you know, we, looked at the numbers as long as the numbers made sense um, you know we bought the properties we didn't really go in and, and look at it or you know do a lot of things on our end um, to get those ready um, yeah I mean think you know fast forward to now we still have you know the majority of our portfolio that were more hands-on are still in Las Vegas we had a couple properties locally in California which we sold towards the peak I tried to time it but it wasn't you know at the maximum peak but it was you know good and then we also have a lot of passive investments that we do we have a lot of clients who syndicate real estate um and so we're really able to leverage you know their expertise um to get into some of the larger uh real estate deals as well did um have you ever utilized the 1031 exchange we haven't done real uh we haven't done 1031 exchanges because we didn't really have to we had other ways to offset some of the taxes that we've had um obviously have a lot of clients who do 1031 exchange in the you know especially in the past couple years where real estate has gone up a lot but yeah ourselves personally we really haven't had to do 1031 and and so uh, touching on that you know there's the 1031 exchange and then people talk about the lazy 1031 exchange and you mentioned that where it's like you buy something that depreciates off those losses can you explain that for some people out there that maybe you're like oh i'd like to do a 1031 this year but i don't know what i want to buy because the market's a little shaky we don't know where it's going to go and then like you know what they could do instead oh. Yeah, exactly. And that's the, you know, that's the reason that I personally, you know, for us, we didn't do a 1031 exchange. I imagine a lot of clients uh, or even investors that, you know, that's listening to us today will, will likely do it. One of the reasons, uh, one of the issues with the 1031 exchange is that we have, you know, the restriction, right? We have to identify property in 45 days, close within 180 days. Um, and especially right now, a lot of people are just unsure what the market is looking like. And we're not really, we don't want to be pushed into buying another one or two replacement properties just for the tax deferral. 
So the 1031 exchange basically is, <laughs> and I don't know, I kind of made up that word or maybe one of our colleagues made up that word. Um, so you won't find it in the IRS code, right? <laughs> so we're just saying, hey, instead of adhering to the rules and doing it within the timeline, we give, our, we give ourselves more time. As long as we buy replacement property or properties within the same year, as the year when we sold our properties, then we could still use whatever losses that we strategically create from the new property to offset some of the gain on the property that we sold earlier in the year. So let's say if I sold a property in January, I'm not even sure if I have anything to buy yet. If I waited until November or October or even December to buy my replacement property, as long as those new properties are placed in service, in this year, then I could still do depreciation, bonus depreciation, maximize my write-offs. And if there are losses, tax losses, then those generally could offset the gain on the property I sold in January. Fantastic little summary. Yeah, that's such an interesting concept because I've always been like, you know, a little fearful of the 1031 exchange. It's like, man, you got like a gun to your head where you're like, oh gosh, I got to find something. I got to sell something. You know, I got to make this all happen. So if you can have a way that you can go out and purchase something and then use the depreciation or the bonus depreciation to uh, offset that loss, then, you know, it takes a lot of the pressure off. It's a really interesting strategy that I think a lot of people don't know about. Yeah, yeah. And that works with long-term, you know, um, long-term rental, short-term rental, mid-term rental. We have a lot of clients who've, you know, traditionally own long-term rentals. You know, we'll take an example of someone in the healthcare industry, right? So you own a long-term rental for many years. Now you're just realizing that there's this huge tax benefit of being a short-term rental investor. So we're seeing a lot of people 1031 exchange their long-term rentals into short-term rentals. So they get the tax benefit, they get the tax deferral. So it's kind of a win-win situation. Very nice. So you mentioned that you, you know, you grew up in Las Vegas and then now you live in Southern California. And so that's two very different states whenever it comes to taxes. And so can you kind of touch on that? Like, okay, a, a, a very tax friendly state like Nevada and then a very tax intensive state like California. What are kind of like the, the big differences between them and like what, what should real estate investors be thinking about if they're going to go towards, you know, a higher tax state? Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, you're the first, first person who's brought up this question to me. That's really interesting. Yeah. Starting on my career, you know, growing up in Las Vegas, I didn't even know there were state income taxes, I guess. So when I first moved to California and started working in, in a big four firm, it's like, it was so strange to me to prepare a second tax return, just showing state taxes. And of course, California is one of the few states that basically differs from the IRS in many, many, many things. Like California doesn't allow for bonus depreciation, real estate professional. So it's almost like a, a different country and, and doing, you know, the tax return, the planning for, you know, based on a completely different set of law. You know, for real estate, investors, I think what we have is is the benefit of depreciation still. What I mean by that is I often have clients who maybe reside in Nevada or California and invest in Texas or invest in Florida, right? And so just making sure you work with a tax advisor who's well-versed in multi-state taxation. But you know, if you're someone who lives in California and you have an investment property in Michigan, let's say, it's important to know that if there is taxable income, you likely have to um, file and pay taxes in Michigan as well as in California. So really important to understand and maximize your depreciation, your write-offs, because not only is it saving you on federal income taxes, but also very likely saving you you on the various state income taxes that you might otherwise have to pay. 
Yeah, and this just highlights like the importance of having a very competent and well-versed CPA because if you're like underwriting a property that you're going to make X amount of money and then all of a sudden you get you know hit with this state income tax that you weren't expecting or something like that that you didn't know, you could actually be underwater with that investment and you didn't realize that you thought you were going to be cash flowing and not. And so, yeah, that's why it's important to find a great CPA such as yourself to be able to make sure that you're, you know, hitting all of your things. We should, we should ask her one of our, one of your questions, one of our questions before the, this conversation, how do we spot a good CPA? So we, we, we know you're the greatest, but we can't clone you around the country. So if there are <laughs> those people that, that, uh, that can't find Amanda Hahn, how, how can, they, how, what are some of the uh, green flags or red flags they should look for? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. I'm trying to clone myself, right, by growing our team here. And so I think one of the issues is that it's very hard to find CPAs who are uh, well-versed in real estate. Um, and even within real estate, right, we were chatting before the show, there are, it's even more difficult to find those who um, even niche down into different aspects of real estate, long-term rentals, mid-term rentals, short-term rentals. And, you know, when you're interviewing CPAs, I think it's really important to ask more powerful questions. So instead of just saying, hey, do you work with real estate investors? That's like a terrible question because they will always say yes, even if they have someone who's, you know, renting out a room in their home, that you know, actually qualifies them to say, yes, I work with a real estate investor client. So you just want to ask more powerful questions. We talked earlier about the short-term rental loophole, right? So now you guys all know what that is. So you, when you're interviewing, for example, you can say, tell me about the short-term rental loophole. Right. What are your thoughts about the short-term rental loophole? And see, you know, do they have a, a good way to um, answer that specific question? Or even, you know, what are your midterm rental investors doing successfully? Right. If you're someone in the midterm rental space, I would like to hear what are their other midterm rentals doing? Are they just renting to nurses or are they also getting involved in with insurance companies and other types of avenue to get clients? Um, so I think, you know, it's in very open ended conversations like that where you you quickly get a feel for really how well versed they are in real estate um, and therefore the real estate tax piece of it. So, so since you were gracious enough to touch on my people, the medium to rental people, uh, you know, we've talked a lot about short term rentals, short term rental loopholes, stuff like that. Is there anything like specific to medium term rentals, like furnished medium term rental housing, where you're paying utilities and all that other stuff? Is there specific things for medium term rentals that people should be looking out for as far as taxes go? Yeah, I actually love mid term rentals. Yeah, I actually love midterm rentals. Um, I think that's something that I personally I'll probably get into or dip my feet in next. So and it's really interesting because from the midterm rental perspective, you have a choice for some time, for some people, you have a choice to treat it either as long-term rentals or as short-term rentals for tax purposes, depending on which one will give you more tax benefit. So as an example, if you are already, you or a spouse, right? If you are already a real estate professional, then your midterm rentals, you want them to be treated as long-term for tax purposes. The reason being that you can naturally use the losses against W-2 and other income because one of you is a real estate professional. 
Um, on the other hand, you know, if if you and a spouse you're both working full time and you're really trying to use the short term rental loophole, then it might be possible to treat your midterm rental more like a hotel type business and then be able to use the losses against W two income. Um, a couple of different criteria on the midterm rental side to be treated as a hotel is that the average guest stay does need to be thirty days or less. So you're looking at you know this property for the whole year, you know number of uh, bookings. So if the average guest stay is 30 days or less and you provide hotel type services, then it's treated as a hotel and you can use losses against W2 and other income. Again, even if this is just a side hustle and you're not claiming real estate professional status. Um, when it comes to like hotel type services, I think this is uh, kind of a hit and miss based on different midterm rental operators I speak with. You want to do more than just giving them the space. So we have midterm rental investors who maybe allow the tenant to also use their vehicle when they're there, right? So it's, you know, get the property plus the car. I've even heard of people doing forced cleaning um, where like, you know, if you're staying here for a month, I'm going to send my people here twice a week or once a week to do cleaning. So the more of these kinds of services you add on, the more likely it is to be treated as a hotel for tax purposes. And, and as long as it hits those hotel service criteria, it, it also on top of that needs to be less than 30 days, correct? Just so I make sure I'm yes. understanding you correctly. Okay. Yep, exactly. And then so once it meets that definition, then you're looking at, do I meet the material participation, right? The material participation rule is the same as what we talked about for short term rentals. But now we're just applying to the midterm rental space. I think I think I think a rookie investors have no idea that material participation is even a word. So I think for those that are listening for the first time that like that's the magic word that you need to hone in on is a material participation. I was like trying to listen this whole time. It's like what would a rookie really gain from? And I think like that's something that I had little understanding. Depreciation you've I've heard of, we've heard of, but like it's a more common word. But material participation, I think, for the rookie investor is a is a huge thing. So really appreciate Amanda that you you dug into that from the STR, the MTR, and the LTR side. That was huge. <laughs> then uh, if, if I could selfishly plug a question then. So me, I, I now work remotely and with my job, I work on productivity. And so I only really work, like don't tell my boss this, really only work like three, maybe four hours a day. And so I know whenever I've heard some other CPAs talk, they were saying that like, hey, if you basically have a salary job where they're expecting you to quote unquote work 40 hours a week, you know, throughout the entire year, you shouldn't even try to become a real estate professional because the, the IRS is going to say, no, there's no way you can do both. But if you have a situation like mine where it's like, hey, I actually, the actual work that I do, is there a way that I can like track the amount of work that I actually do? And I, you, you understand my question? Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. I think you're right. What typically the IRS will say, you know, you are very efficient. So you're getting paid to work eight hours, but you only spend three. So going to consider that eight hours, right? And they go off the assumption, like, does your boss know you're only working three hours a day? <laughs> um, so I think that if it's not clear in your employment contract, then that might be, you know, something to get firmed up. Like, hey, I'm not being paid as a full-time employee. I'm being paid based on, you know, projects or a number of hours, then that's an easier argument for you to make, right? But if your employment is, hey, David is a full-time employee, 
then they're going to just slap on the what 2000 hours per year and you have to have more than that to be a real estate professional right? you or a spouse right that's that's kind of how it, it ends up being but i think you're right you know there's there's a lot of confusion around what is a real estate professional what is material participation you know i know yanni mentioned like hey you know the newbie investors don't understand it the sad truth is a lot of cpas don't even understand it you know and that's why on social media i get all these dms from people who say hey my cpa never um, knew about this and so really important to you know at least educate yourself with the basics of what these are these are very um important keywords in terms you know in terms of arriving at how much rental losses you can actually use against W-2 and other income. I have uh, on my website, keystonecpa.com, we have a free tax savings toolkit that anybody can go on and just download where we talk more about defining what some of those things are. I mean, we talked about the material participation today, um, but we have a whole section just on like real estate professional. What does that mean? You know, what, what actually qualifies? Fantastic. I will certainly be going and visiting and checking it out because I mean, it's it's such a such a murky world of taxes. And that's always I think that's why people just trying to like avoid it, and like shove it under the rug until like April comes around. And then they're like, oh, crap, you know, I have to be doing all kinds of stuff. But yeah, if you can have somebody like you that's, you know, got all these materials and then something that's more upfront, that's fantastic. You're doing an amazing service. I think people fear taxes. If I if I, I just want to hone in on one last thing before we get into personal questions, I think. As somebody who's not as familiar with all the tax loopholes, and I'm going to learn, I'm making sure that I'm going to get much smarter now that we talk to Amanda, and I hope the audience does. I think people, when they think of taxes, they think of capital gains. They think of like they bought and they sold a stock and they got a big bill. I know that's happened to me when I made, I made a bunch of money on Bitcoin one time during the highs. <laughs> And then I did not plan for the capital gains tax. And I just, you, you become, you repress the trauma of the bill. So I think this is really helpful, Amanda, that like that you're out there and that people are going to be able to connect with you and work with you because I think you're a very you're very wise, smart, and you you know you're the OG of uh, of I would say real estate tax strategy. So we're we're honored to to have you, and I would say like you're the antidote for the capital gains um, PTSD group out there. <laughs> David, what do you say? Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I just really, I had one more question that I, I had written down that I really wanted to ask because I think it'll be super helpful from people like on all sorts or all sides of the spectrum from, you know, like the very little beginning guys to somebody that might be more advanced. So if somebody was like a salaried position making like forty or $50,000 a year versus somebody that's a salaried position making like $500,000 a year, what things would you do differently for each of those individual people? So if we've got a physician that's listening for the first time that's making 500000 how would you guide them versus somebody that's working for, you know, whatever, making 40000 a year? Mm -hmm. I don't know that it would be a huge difference in terms of what I would recommend from an investment perspective, right? I mean, for someone who's making $500,000 a year um, and really just wants to do real estate part-time, um, I would probably kind of steer them more towards the short-term rental space. Um, again, just because that's one of the loopholes where you can still keep your profession, working in that profession, but also just, you know, doing real estate on the side and, and seeing a huge tax benefit. Um, for someone who's making maybe $40,000 a year, um, if, you know, even if you invest in long-term rental losses, um, you can still use up to 25,000 of tax losses against W-2 income 
even if you are not a real estate professional, right? So for someone with lower income, maybe it's just a, a wider range of real estate in terms of long-term, mid-term, and short-term that they can consider. Um, so, you know, I think it's really interesting you guys are saying, you know, when people hear about taxes, they're afraid of capital gains. Um, I would add to that people are afraid of receipts, right? Nobody likes the receipts, capital gains, bookkeeping, right? Those are things that people really just dread talking about um, and, and fearful of the IRS, right? Another another huge one, of course. Um, but really, in all the years that we've been working with investor clients across the nation, what I find is that once someone sees how simple and powerful tax savings could be, they actually start to love taxes. And you'll probably see, you know, what I what always happens is like, I'll go on social media and I'll see some of my clients out there making videos about tax savings. And, you know, I, my first inclination is like, oh my God, I'm afraid. Like, I wonder, I'm, I'm hoping they didn't say anything wrong. Um, but then my second reaction is always like, I'm so happy and proud because that's what I can see. Like, wow, they, it's someone who went from like really hating taxes to now loving taxes and even sharing the message on their own channels and helping other people to do it. I, I need to become like that. I need to become like that. Just like I, this, I feel like this um, episode for me is like medicine because I am in the fear group totally. So I love that you're mm -hmm. saying that. I feel, I feel like this is a therapy session for me. <laughs> hey, no, I've, I've heard that from a ton of people though, is where it's like, okay, you know, once you finally cross that threshold which i apparently have not crossed yet because i don't feel that comfortable with it yet but like yeah once once you start like getting to a certain level like you know you get into a room with super super successful people you know the david greens the brandon turners of the world like the only thing they want to talk about is taxes because there's <laughs> such huge advantages to it that's all they want to talk about and then you know for us people that are on the earlier stages of their investing career they're like the last thing i want to talk about is taxes. i want to talk about this cool little short-term rental market in whatever city you know what i mean yeah, yeah. It's funny you say that because, yeah, especially a lot of times once they see the power of tax savings, it's something, it's, it's actually one of the major tools that's used to build wealth, right? Debt and taxes. I think Robert Kiyosaki talks about that. Like, I build my wealth on debt and taxes. So it's definitely great to, um, you know, to share the message and, and have more um, people utilize what's legally available. Amanda, I want to be respectful of your time. Do you have 10 more minutes to do some personal cues? I don't. No? Sorry, I have, to, yeah, I have to hop off in three minutes. Before three minutes, no. my next call. So, so, so but I'll come back. I'll, I'll, I'll come back I'll, to another one. Hell yeah, that means a lot to me. Thanks for, you know, we did the studio so so it would look even better. Um, so I didn't predict awesome. the, the uh, technicalities. But just to, because you have three minutes. Well, David, you want to take it? Yeah, I was just say, make sure you touch on well, what what books do you have out currently? Can you plug those books? Because I think they're going to be massively helpful for people. And then where can people find out more about you? What's more about, you know, Keystone, your company? How can people reach out to you and figure out more about what you do? So they're not going to be trying yeah. to yeah, yeah. Yes. So my husband and I wrote two books published by Bigger Pockets. Um, you can, uh, one is called Tax Strategies for the Savvy Real Estate Investor. And the other one is called The Book on Advanced Tax Strategies, both really um, specializing in uh, real estate. And it's, I know before you feel like I'm never going to read a book on tax strategies, um, I can tell you the feedback I've gotten from people is really pretty phenomenal. Like people take it to the beach and read it. Um, there's very little tax code, very little numbers. It's just a 
a collection of client stories, success stories, as well as nightmare stories on tax planning done well and tax planning done wrong. So you can find it on Amazon, Bigger Pockets, or um, anywhere books are sold. Um, if you're looking for daily tax tips, um, I'm mostly found on Instagram as Amanda Han CPA. Um, and of course, if you are looking for help with tax planning or you want to download a free tax savings toolkit, you can go to keystonecpa.com. That, that was perfect. Um, awesome. Thank you so much for coming on, Amanda. We really, really appreciate it. This is super cool. This is the first time we've uh, had somebody that explain. I mean, Ryan did a fantastic job, but we got a little bit like more technical stuff. This was a little bit more of just like making everybody feel a little bit more warm and fuzzy about taxes. So we appreciate that. And thank you so much for coming on. Any other closing words before we get you out of here? No, no, I'm glad to be here. And I, I hope to come back. You know, there's always tax changes and stuff. So uh, I'll come back and give you guys any updates. We will certainly have you on. Thank you so much. All right. This has been yeah. another episode of the Fetcher Podcast. We will see you guys later. Peace.